0: When we talk about data a lot of times people only really kind of focus on the quantitative side of the data but there's a qualitative side too right and so i think a lot of times when we look at just on data driven so here's the numbers here's the numbers here's the numbers yeah but what does that mean and well, not just what the numbers mean but what does that mean to your employees to your people to these people to whoever how do people feel about that like how does it fit together and i don't think you can have a full picture unless you put all those different types of data all those different types of information unless you put them together you're not telling the full story. And I think at its best, I think that data is really all about just telling a story, right? And understanding what the story is, because you can look at the numbers all day and they're just numbers on a page. But if you look at the numbers in context, they can actually tell you a story about what happened, what's currently happening, what's about to happen.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host open office hours. You can register to attend by going to bit.ly.com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to seeing you all there let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode and don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review Our guest today is a thought leader in innovation, education, and entrepreneurship. He's earned a bachelor's in electrical engineering, a master's in electrical engineering, and has also earned a master's and PhD in materials science and engineering. He's currently the CEO of Pruitt Solutions, a technology sales and consulting firm that leverages data science for economic development, system engineering for small business success and Innovation Management. In addition to working as an engineer and researcher with several Fortune 500 companies and universities before starting his business, he's also had an active career as a researcher, author, and speaker in the areas of innovation, education, and entrepreneurship. He's given talks across the country on topics ranging from student success in STEM to how to leverage technology for business success. He's also the co-author of a book for students interested in pursuing careers in technology titled STEM Navigators. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a champion for leveraging technology to promote transformative systems change, Dr. Anderson D. Pruitt. Dr. Pruitt, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come onto the show today. I really appreciate having you here.
0: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: So talk to us about how you first heard of data science and what drew you to the field.
0: Yeah, so it's funny. I can't honestly say I really like heard of it, if that makes sense, right? What actually happened with me was more so I was in school, you know, as I was taking classes and trying to really figure out how I was going to graduate. I took one or two classes just because I needed some electives for electrical engineering. So it seemed interesting to me because I was doing electrical engineering but I still liked computers more than necessarily the just straight hardware side of it. And so I started taking a couple classes. They had just offerings on like things like pattern recognition and neural networks. What is this? And so that's kind of how I first really kind of got introduced to the concepts. And then later when I went on working, I would see again where I would think like, huh, you know, that stuff I learned may actually be applicable because I was doing things like process improvement or Six Sigma where you actually collect a lot of data and then apply it to improving processes and things like that. And I realized, like, there's probably some applications for that type of stuff when you're doing, you know, classification and things like that. So I kind of went from there. And what's funny is I think I never really considered myself a data scientist, so to speak. I just thought I was just an engineer who did some, you know, some stuff with data. Right. And I think probably where the real shift took place, where I really kind of started doing more data science than anything was probably right before I was going to graduate with my Ph.D., You know, I was in the lab. I was doing like, you know, hardcore like research and using different pieces of equipment. For some of the experiments we're doing in material science, we had to use what they call, you know, neutron diffraction. And you know, without getting into you know too much detail, essentially, you collect information about what's going on inside a material, and you're using these big nuclear reactors that are basically just bombarding this, you know, piece of material with a bunch of neutrons. And you're collecting information that comes off those detectors. And so this thing is sitting in there for like days, sometimes weeks at a time, and you have to take all the information and interpret, okay, so what was happening with this material while you were doing these tests in real time? And I've studied, like, the physics and stuff and, and the science behind how the material should and what happens with that. I didn't really know how to actually deal with all that data and essentially my advisor was like well you should probably figure that out if you want to graduate so you know, <laughs> I went back to the books so I had to figure it out and I had to realize like how can I what's going on here how can I do some pattern classification on these you know graphs and things that we got out how can I basically instead of me having to go one by one how can I you know use MATLAB or some kind of code and teach the computer to actually find these patterns and these things I'm looking at for me so that I can then understand okay well if this is the pattern that I see based on these detectors, then this is what's physically happening. And now that I have that physical understanding, I can apply it to you know, understand what's going on with this material and to know how to do other experiments or to do other stuff when you're producing it. And so from that, after graduation, I went on and really still didn't really know I, think I was doing data science. So that makes sense? It's crazy as it sounds. But after graduation, while I was looking for jobs and figuring out what I wanted to do next, someone approached me who knew that I had done a lot of work with data while I was in school and while I was training. And they said, hey, we have like 10 years worth of data from this program that we've done with some students. Our grants running out. We need to do something with it. Can you help us kind of interpret this data and tell us what's going on here? Do some analytics on it. Can you, you know, help us? We'll pay you. At the time, I didn't have a job. I was looking, so I was like, yeah, sure, I can do that, right? (laughs) Figure out the rest later. So yeah, so basically, I was able to kind of help them use some different techniques and software and stuff to kind of really interpret and go through what they were doing and after that was successful you know somebody else you know kind of hit me up and then somebody else and eventually by like the third I guess customer I had one of my friends was like hey Dunny why don't you start a company or do something you know like actually be a business person so I was like oh okay and so I started a company doing that I will say this the interesting part about the whole story is that even then I don't think I really put data scientists or really anything like on my resume I really thought of myself as it I was just you know, engineer and now a business owner who we do stuff with data if you have it. And we just kind of kept doing that because only fairly recently since, you know, data science and big data has come so in vogue, right? The data science, the new high term topic career. I think I, you know, changed out my LinkedIn profile, like maybe less than a year ago, like, oh, I, I should do this. Um, and I've gotten yeah, so many people like hit me up like, oh, wait, we, we never understood. And I was like, but I've been doing the same thing for years. I don't understand why it's such a big deal now. But That's kind of how, long story short, how I kind of got to here and doing it now. So it's pretty interesting, I guess.
1: Yeah, definitely. I love hearing about how people get into data science and sometimes they even just kind of accidentally stumble into it through the course of their normal work. Like, oh yeah, this this data is just what I have to do as part of my job. And now it's, you know, it's evolved into something so much bigger. So what were some of the challenges you faced like coming up through school? Because PhD... Just highly educated was it something that was just easy or was there a lot of hard work were there challenges
0: yeah definitely wasn't easy well i'll put it like this it was hard but it wasn't i think as hard as some people think right like i do a lot of stuff with students and talk about like you know stem and science and engineering and math and just working with students kind of helping them not only get phds but helping them get scholarships and just you know giving them you know encouragement in doing it and i tell them like look man if i can get a phd anybody can get a phd right it's not necessarily easy, but you know, there's a process to it. I think that the most challenging part, quite honestly, isn't even I would say the science, right? It's not even like the cause because that's in books, right? You can learn that, you can find it, you can figure it out. But when you're talking about going to like the level of like the PhD and beyond the master, even just really getting really knowledgeable in some area you're literally creating new knowledge and finding something new. And that's more challenging just because the process isn't as scripted, right? Or as it probably should be. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I think is missing in definitely in academia in terms of like how they we train PhDs and then scientists and things like that. But I would say in education in general is just better mentorship, you know, and I think that goes from education to career to whatever in terms of if you look at like those last years, like when you get terminal degree, like a PhD, all undergrad as long as you go to your class, you do the homework, you'll get your degree. You can get all A's. Even to, in a master's to a certain extent, you know, you might have to have a higher bar in terms of what grades you have to make. But unless you're doing a thesis or it's not a thesis, just take your classes, do your stuff, and even thesis, fairly scripted, you'll get your degree. When you get to a PhD, it's literally like three to five people telling you, yes, you can graduate or no, you can't graduate. And it's not just satisfying all those other academic requirements, it's just satisfying individuals and people. And anybody who's got a PhD can tell you all kinds of horror stories about personalities getting involved and, you know, two advisors fighting so you can't graduate or just all these other things. And I think what happens sometimes is the non-academic stuff that can actually get in the way of, you know, people and individuals who actually want to succeed, you know, and sometimes it's based on things like the imposter syndrome, like, you know, because of where you come from, you think you can't do it. Or even, you know, there's seeing all the things happening today, There's systemic inequalities in certain times that can inhibit you know, people's you know, ability for success. It's not unachievable or unattainable, or it's not that it can't be overcome. It's just sometimes the important part is recognizing that it can be done and then figuring out a path to do it.
1: Thank you very much for sharing that. That was really insightful. So I want to get into some of your perspectives on where do you think AI, machine learning, data science, and all that is headed in the next two to five years. So where do you see the field headed in the next couple of years?
0: I think it's interesting, man. I think It is such an amazing time right now, right? With all the tragedy, with all the crazy stuff going on. If you, almost regardless of what field you're in, what you're doing, you know, what's going on today is vastly different from what it was like this time last year. And what it's going to look like this time next year is going to be vastly different, right? And I say that's probably true across the board, almost every field, every, you know, everything. I think when particularly we talk about things like data, big data, AI, machine learning, uh, you know, deep learning, I think that it's kind of come to that point where, you know, it's kind of in, you know, the vernacular of just common people these days, right? So even if you've never even been to school or don't know anything, you probably heard it on TV or know something about it, right? Even more so than it used to be, say, back in the day. And it's more accessible than ever before, right? There's all kind of, you know, free software, there's YouTube programs, there's these courses and stuff where even if you're not in school, you can learn it in, honestly, a couple months, learn enough for the basics to be an analyst or at least to understand it. And so I think that's incredibly empowering for a lot of people if you get the chance to, because what that means is now you can learn how to not only have control of your own data, but how to do all these amazing things and really bring your ideas to light. I think that's going to be a big kind of game changer, especially when you look at, you know, the economic and kind of, you know, devastation that we're facing worldwide due to these, you know, all the different you know, factors going on. But I think the other side is, like anything else, there's a gift and a curse, right? The fact that it's so useful, there's more data than ever before in the history of mankind, right? And there's so much information that's readily available to be used for some really good, great, cool things. I think the flip side of that is, and we see it sometimes in the media and in you know, our movies and just in, in real time, that data can also be used to harm if it's not done the correct way, right? And so I think a, a very good example is something like we look at things like systemic inequality, systemic racism, systemic sexism, all these events. We spend a lot of time talking about the sexism, the racism, the inequality. We don't spend as much time talking about the system. And, and really, you know, racism first. Racism isn't the person, right? We talk about the one bad apple or the racist person who did this. To a certain extent, they don't matter. It's not about them. It's about the system that allows them to do that. So we're at a point in time now where, you know, technically, you don't have to be an individual racist to have unequal justice for people in law enforcement. If they're using algorithms that'll hurt certain minorities and certain groups, they have different outcomes when it comes to like their bail. If that's set by, say, a computer or something based on their record or something like that. If we're talking about, you know, systemic inequalities when it comes to things like, you know, income or wealth you know, creation. Well, if there's algorithms that banks or credit companies use to create the conditions that allow redlining in these neighborhoods where black people can't live here, they can't live here, or that allow, you know, certain, you know, credit scores or something like that. I think it was the Apple card that came out and they come to find out is Apple is kind of sexist, right. You know, because it was actually giving for the people who, you know, man and wife, they would give one credit score to this guy and another credit score to this lady. These are things that are now systemic and AI has become part of that system. And so what happens is, if we're not careful about how we you know, treat these you know, machines and how we're applying this great tool that we have, we're going to see some very negative consequences. And I think that's kind of, and I know it's kind of a roundabout answer, but I think that's kind of really where we're at, where it's again, the gift and the curse, where it's like, we have a huge opportunity to do some really, really good things with these tools and this data and this information that we have. But we also must be very, very careful about who can get hurt and who gains and who are the winners and who are the losers if we're not careful about how we apply it. And so I think you're gonna see a lot more of the things like the, the ethics behind AI, you know, like mm-hmm. people are talking now about all these cool things with deep learning. And I think, you know, deep learning is cool and it's great. I don't necessarily think it's the pinnacle. I think it's gonna have to be, you know, what comes after deep learning, right? When you can teach an AI or a machine to kind of, you know, train itself, that's great. But at the same time, just because it can train itself doesn't mean it's quote unquote intelligent. I think the artificial intelligence part, I think that can kind of throw people because it's like, you know, the computer really isn't smarter than the baby, right? The same way you have to train a baby, you know, you have to train a computer. When you first start, you get really bad, you know, stuff, but as it gets trained, it gets smarter and smarter. Babies work the same way. However, that first couple of years, they're you know, still pooping diapers and they're still making a mess and whatever else. AI will do the same thing if you give it bad information. And so I think a lot of times the data we start with or the assumptions we make, and, If that's the starting place, you're going to see a lot of bad outcomes unless we have some kind of ethical way to reinforce that, you know, what's developed there.
1: So what can we do as practitioners of data science and machine learning to make sure that the work that we're doing isn't perpetuating these types of negative biases and having these type of consequences downstream for society?
0: I think part of it is, I think is the ego thing, right? I think we have to start and really look at the the whole idea, concept of artificial intelligence versus just artificial, you know, computing and thought and whatever. Like, yes, there is a quote unquote intelligence. We are thinking of these computers and trying to teach them things and like a human brain and as a machine. And that's, you know, what happens there. But I think that we also have to understand there's a responsibility that comes with that. And I think that, you know, the best way I, I always try to look at it And when I talk to whether it's my students or just when I have these conversations about it, I always try to frame AI not as like the brainiac, right? Not as like the supercomputer, Skynet, whatever. I try to talk about AI in terms of raising a child or a baby, whatever else, and how would you want to raise them? If you train that child up or that baby up and you teach them a wide range of things, they get experiences, and you yourself have enough knowledge and actually take the time to learn the right things to teach them, then that child has a better chance of growing up and doing the right things, you know, being happy, being healthy, and actually helping other people, if that's how you train them. If you really don't care, and just let the child go and kind of run amok, there's no telling what you'll get back. And also, too, there's ways, and you know, science has shown us this, that you can almost guarantee that there's a high likelihood that that child will do really, really bad stuff later on you know, and it seems really, really, I'm still to say it, almost look at ourselves almost like, we're like parents, right? When you create this code, you're literally creating something with intelligence, quote unquote, releasing to the world. How do you want to do that? And understand the impact that you as an individual or you as a group of people will have. And I think if as practitioners, we look at it that way, then we have to start asking ourselves the hard question, like, okay, if I'm writing a program that will be specifically for say pregnant women, right? Having never been a pregnant woman myself, can I write the program? Do I know the code? Yes. Does it make sense for me to get some insight or to talk to or to interact with some people who will be affected by that code to make sure that what I'm doing, I have a full understanding or at least as much as I can get of how that affects them? And I think that that's kind of, in a lot of times, the missing piece because it's real easy to look at, oh, look at this data, look at this code, look at this, and that's great. But think about now. Let's say you're writing code to make decisions about people who get medical procedures or something related to COVID or whatever else. Now, we're not talking about just data. We're talking about people. And so when the data points become people, then it gets real. And I think sometimes it's very easy as a scientist or a practitioner or engineer or whatever to, to separate out the data points from the people points, so to speak. And so I think if we can figure out how to not do that or just kind of widen the conversation beyond just the ones and zeros, I think that's what's really going to make the biggest impact on fully comprehending the ethics behind what we're doing.
1: So it's taking it one step further. Don't just worry about your, evaluation metric or your optimization metric, right? Mm-hmm. Because when we're building models, that's kind of what we care most about during that process, yeah. but it's stepping back and saying, okay, well, hold on, let me see what is contributing to this and how are the features I'm using for my model harmful or, or biased, right? So it's just taking a step back and kind of looking at the picture holistically. Is that kind of.
0: I would say so. Cause I mean, if you really think about it, right, I think that helps it in multiple ways, right? Just from a ethical standpoint, I think it can be positive outcomes. You look at who can I help? Who can I hurt when I do and deploy this thing? Am I creating Skynet, right? like <laughs> that's just ask that question. But I think even from a, just being a, a better programmer, a better coder, or better just thinking at a higher level in terms of wherever you're at in your position, in your company or your business or whatever, it just makes sense to try to look at things holistically, right? Like look at the, try to get a top level of systems view, Think, talk to other people, and kind of get more perspective. Because all that really does is it can be challenges and may slow you down a little bit, right? You, this is how you feel, but it actually will make your code more robust. It will make your software more robust. It will actually make it better, both for you as someone who's coding it and really think through all the parameters, but also for your end user or customer or whoever it is. And so, I think that's just taking the time to kind of understand that piece. And honestly, depending on your level or your function or kind of what you're doing, and I think as a community of people who kind of practition this, I think it's important to really have conversations about it often, right? Because I think what that does is, to a certain extent, it does challenge the status quo. But I think that the more we as a community have these conversations and understand and try to bring these parts in, the easier it gets for us as a community to develop solutions to some of these really, really big problems that are happening as a result of those stuff we're doing.
1: Speaking of ethics, I know that for a lot of people that might sound like a very vague term, and it's not anything that really gets taught in data science curriculums, which I definitely think it should be. How can we educate ourselves on ethics? Where do we turn to for guidance on that to make sure that the work that we are doing is, is actually ethical?
0: Yeah, I think, honestly, you know, there's always the quote, right? Those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it, right? And so I think that probably the best place is really just looking at, at history. And I think that there's so many historical examples of, and I think history beyond just quote-unquote data science, but just the history of science in general, right? So- you know, when I was in school before I picked engineering, I actually have a minor in, like, say, quote, you know, Black history. So, and also just growing up where I grew up, I kind of studied a lot of that and knew it. You know, I grew up in, in rural Mississippi, so the topics interest me and stuff. So I read books and things like that. But if you look at just the history of science when applied to bad things, right? And you can look across the world, and what you'll see is, you know, you can basically torture data to get it to tell you whatever you wanted to, to a certain extent. And a lot of times, when you look at quote-unquote, bad science or pseudoscience. It wasn't necessarily pseudoscience at the time or even, quote-unquote, pseudoscience, depending on who was using it. Even in the U.S., right, when you look back all the way to the days of, like, slavery, there was actually a term for slaves who ran away or who wanted to escape. They were considered crazy. Science said they were crazy. There was a term called drapetomania. That person, oh, that slave is clearly insane because he's trying to run away from this nice slavery they're in, and so he must be a drapetomaniac, and they, it's chronicled. There's a science behind it. When you look at things like you know, World War II and the Nazis and stuff, there were scientists that worked there that had all this scientific data of why what they were doing was right and why these were superior beings and stuff, whatever. And they backed it up with data and quote-unquote science, right? And some of these are very depressing things to talk about in your nice little, look at this cool program I wrote, <laughs> data science class. But I think it's important to kind of really filter in or factor in an understanding of how a very, very good thing can be used to do a very, very bad thing. Right. And because a lot of times, again, we think in ones and zeros and we're just talking about algorithms that sometimes forget that depending on how it's used, those algorithms can be people. And so I think that even some basic understanding of information can be misused or how one wrong line of code or not having a full data set can affect people in real terms, in real time, both historically and, you know, even some days right now where it's happening. I think that gives students or even older practitioners more perspective because you realize like, oh, wow, I didn't even think that was something to think about. But I think that kind of looking at the history kind of up to the present, those examples of how both science and even to data science can be used effectively. But for negative reasons, I think that forces you to kind of think differently about what you're doing in real
1: time. So it is taking ownership upon yourself to go and get educated, not just reading your data science books, not just.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think, honestly, I would say it's twofold. I think one, if you're going to jump into this field and practice it, I think it makes sense to kind of take ownership or take stock of like that full spectrum, right? To understand how is this being used? Like how is it being used good? How is it being used bad? What am I doing or writing or understanding that can adversely affect someone? Because it's just one of those things, being an expert and being good at your craft, right? Because depending on what you're doing, if you're writing some data science code for a bank and you press the wrong button and lose half the money for all the people who are in there, that's you know a bad thing. We know that we can conceptualize that, right? But if you only quote unquote do that and don't even realize, but you also lose half the money or don't, or there's some subset of population that doesn't even get to get their own money or doesn't get to make money because of that, we don't necessarily see that as clearly. So I definitely say there's a personal responsibility to it. But I also think that as business owners, as practitioners, as a community that uses it, as scientists, whatever, as educators, I think there's a responsibility on the institutions that are either teaching or utilize data scientists to make sure that's part of what they do. If you have a company where you know you're employing data science or even just, you know, programmers, I think if you really have, most companies have a mission statement and values and what they believe in, if you have that, then stick by that and make sure that part of your mission and part of your values is to make sure that your employees and people who are practicing this are living up those values as they're doing their daily work. If you're a university or some school for profit or nonprofit, whatever it is, and you're training people how to do these things, part of the curriculum should be to understand the ethics and what are the negative consequences that can come if you do a bad job or if you use this skill set incorrectly. So I think that it needs to be kind of bold, where it needs to be a certain amount of individual responsibility, but also institutional responsibility as well.
1: what's up artists I would love to hear from you feel free to send me an email to science at gmail.com let me know what you love about the show let me know what you don't love about the show and let me know what you would like to see in the future I absolutely would love to hear from you I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting and you can register by going to bit.ly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode absolutely agree with you and this is one of the reasons i push back against people who say they are data driven or they want to torture the data until it confesses or they're digging through data for insights because that's kind of the wrong way to go you should work from the outside world to the data right be data informed insights I think should come from the real world your yeah domain and then using the data to kind of color that insight a little
0: yeah and and I think that's kind of one of those things where I think to your point that's where you have to kind of put those things together because you know when we talk about data a lot of times people only really kind of focus on the quantitative side of the data but there's a qualitative side too right and so I think a lot of times when we look at just on data driven, so here's the numbers, here's the numbers, here's numbers, numbers. Yeah, but what does that mean? And not just what the numbers mean, but what does that mean to your employees, to your people, to these people, to whoever? How do people feel about that? Like, how does it fit together? And I don't think you can have a full picture unless you put all those different types of data, all those different types of information, unless you put them together, you're not telling the full story. And I think at its best, I think that data is really all about just telling a story, right? and understanding what the story is, because you can look at the numbers all day and they're just numbers on a page. But if you look at the numbers in context, they can actually tell you a story about what happened, what's currently happening, or what's about to happen, depending on how you're looking at them and how you analyze them. But I think you have to look at it. You can't just have the content, right? Or the data and just those pieces. You have to have the context and the rest of it too. Otherwise you're not getting the full picture.
1: Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate that. Switching gears here a little bit, I wanted to talk to you about your book, STEM Navigators. So what is it about and who is it for?
0: Sure. So it's, again, I feel like I've kind of backed into a lot of these different situations, um, not intentionally. So originally the book was kind of written because as I kind of got out of school and started talking to, if I had talked to like students and people who are getting engineering degrees in some level of like science or engineering or math, something like that, people told me like, oh, that's some good advice. And they'd ask me again and again. I was like, oh, wow. I should. I got kind of miss emails like, oh, trying to I should, you know, I should write this down, right? And then what actually happened was, I'm actually, it's, it's um you know, my book is co-authored by actually you know, five other authors. And we all kind of got together because we realized we'd all gotten our degrees in some, you know, STEM field. Many of us, a couple of us entrepreneurs. Many of us had PhDs. Some of us had had, you know, done other books for just working in education, something like that. And we all realized we had a different kind of story to tell. And so what we tried to do was kind of create a book that's not necessarily like a You know, we wanted to have some, like, here's some key insights, you know, do this, do this, do this. But more than anything, we just wanted to, like, tell a story about, hey, and the reason it's called, you know, STEM Navigators, you know, Pathways to Achievement in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math is because we really wanted to kind of expand and talk about the concept of there's no one path, right? So out of all the authors in the book, we all tell our individual story about, hey, I got to my degree, to my career, to whatever I'm doing. I got to my career in STEM going this way. This other person got to their career going this way. Somebody else went that way. And here are the things that worked for me. Here are the organizations I joined. Here are the things I did did to get letters of recommendation. Here's how I applied to college. Here's how I found scholarships. You know, we give that kind of real information, but also tell those real stories about, hey, for me, it was a little different and I got here, but I'm not necessarily the, the typical, right? And I think that for me, I think, you know, and we really try to be for like, you know, anybody who's at a kind of point in their career, whether, you know, or not even in a career, but like if you're, say, in high school and thinking about maybe STEM, for you, definitely is to talk to like how you can look through your pathways. If you're a college student or even a grad student and you're trying to figure out how to, you know, apply what you're learning or what your path to success may be this is a book for you kind of thing. And even if you're not in school, but thinking about going back and getting your degree it might be worth checking out because essentially I think with every one of the stories, we all had different perspectives, all had different paths to how we got there. And what we tried to do was as much as possible make sure it was just, you know, short, readable and really spoke to, hey, this is my path. It might not be your path, but whatever your path is, here's some suggestions and things that worked for me or for us or whoever. And you'll probably find something you can use to kind of get you to whatever your next level is.
1: I think that's awesome because if you don't know that there are multiple paths to get to something, you're only going to go down the road that you know, right? So it's interesting to be able to hear other people's stories to see how they've gotten to where they got to because then you can probably find, okay, well, here's some roads that I might be able to, to take to get to where I need to go. You highlight a lot of amazing people in your book. Whose work do you think is most relevant to our current global situation?
0: So it's funny, like I had all different authors, they all do some pretty cool stuff, but one of the authors was interesting, because, and I think it kind of really speaks, especially to, you know, kind of what's going on in the, in the U.S., like how education looks different and is framed different for everybody, right? Because Sandra was like, I was like a great student and did well, but like her biggest, you know, fear before graduating wasn't like, oh, where I want to go to school or, you know, will I be valedictorian? None of that. It was like, will I be able to stay in the country, right? And I think that that kind of speaks to a lot because she's, you know, kind of the prototypical will be considered, you know, somebody who has all the you know, checks all the box in terms of, you know, great student, doing well, you know, loves the country, loves our community, wants to make a big difference, was always interested in teaching people in education, doing these great things, but had challenges due to just institutional things and policies that weren't necessarily well thought out or, or good kind of thing. Fast forward, she's a serial entrepreneur, wildly successful, did great in school, you know, educates, runs businesses, does of, all this stuff. But it wasn't a direct path, wasn't necessarily easy. And she had to kind of overcome a lot of those barriers. And I think when you look at today, that's kind of where a lot of people are because there's so much, you know, strife internally, externally, and worldwide related to Everything from, like, you look at, like, the UK and things like Brexit, you look at other places across the globe, look at all the stuff in the U.S. in terms of, you know, immigration and how things are happening. I think that how we interact with people from various different backgrounds, various different communities, and how we bring them together versus separating them um, is important. And I think it's also important to make sure that we allow space for everyone to learn from everyone and to be able to do whatever will make them and their community and our community better. Because at the end of the day, I think that one of the things that is often lost on us, just as individuals, as people, as, you know, society, is that we live in an ecosystem, right? And it's an ecosystem the same way the water cycle and the environment has ecosystem. We live in a socioeconomic ecosystem. And so if there's parts of our society that are, you know, bad or aren't getting what they need, even if we don't pay attention to them right now, that can mess other stuff up way later in what other parts of society, Right. And I think that a lot of times, because we don't look at, again, society holistically, I think that's where a lot of the issues that we have kind of come into play.
1: So speaking of of systems, with your background as a system engineer, can you talk to us about how systems work? And then maybe from there, we can get into how systems can help us or hurt us. Speaking of like systems of success versus systems of oppression. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So I think the easiest way to kind of look at it is every system, to a certain extent, has essentially three main things, right? It has some purpose or some function, right? Like this is what it does, right? In that system, it has certain elements or pieces to it. They could be subsystems. They could be certain features or or something. And then the third thing is just interconnections, right? those systems, those little smaller subsystems or smaller pieces or elements are connected together to help the major purpose happen, right? And so in a nutshell, that's how literally every system works, right? From the ecosystem to you look at your car, to a bicycle to even a school system or, or your business, they all work the same way, right? There's some function that they're supposed to do. There are different subsystems and pieces that help them do it. And in those systems and pieces are you know interconnected or interact in some way to make the purpose happen. That in a nutshell is a system. Now, I think that what's interesting though, is a lot of times, and this is the rub, right? It literally goes in order like that, right? Where you start with the purpose, that's the foundation. Then you have the interconnections that connect to whatever elements you have. The issue is that a lot of times we don't really fully understand these systems. And then and, and the problem with systems is, and I kind of alluded to that before when I talked about systemic racism and things like that, is if you don't really attack and change that purpose, the other pieces just looking at changing one element here, one element there. It may change how the system works a little bit. It may do some things to make it a little different, but it's not fundamentally going to change how the system operates. So what happens is, let's say you have a bicycle, Right. A bicycle system—it has wheels, it has chain, you pedal, and all this kind of stuff. If I remove the left handlebar, it's gonna not work as well, but it's still gonna keep going, right? I mean, oh yeah, have one, but it's still going. Unfortunately, I haven't really stopped it. Honestly, even removing just the front wheel, it's a lot harder. I can pop a wheelie and it's still kind of be going, right? And so what happens a lot of times, depending on the system—both good and bad—we'll call ourselves fixing the system, but really all we did was, oh, I changed out this bicycle seat, this black bicycle seat, with a pink one. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, now I a pink bicycle seat, so now everything should be fine. But the bicycle's still going and going and going. And so when you talk about things like systemic racism, right, just saying, hey, we're going to study, why are these black people angry? We're going to study that. That's putting a pink bicycle seat on a bike and then still riding and still going the same way. You're not fundamentally changing it versus saying, you know what, let's forget this bike. Let's just build us a car, (laughs) you know, or build a skateboard or build something new to get us from A to B. That's actually systemic change because now you're changing the purpose from or or the fundamentals of it, so you have more impact. And I think a lot of times what happens is even you know individually, we set up in our own you know the way we you know interact or the way we do things. We have like our processes that we put together to create systems for our own success, right? You you know go to school, you read books, you graduate. There's a school system. There are things that kind of operate. But I think what also happens is if we're not careful if you do the same things over and over again, these things have a negative impact on your life. You can inadvertently set up systems that don't allow you to succeed. Right. So things like, you know, when people have different uh, addictions and things like that, well, that addiction now becomes the purpose of your life. That becomes your major function. So now well, you can't go to work and concentrate because you got to go and deal with this addiction, you can't, Do the stuff you need to with your kids, with your family, because this addiction has become your overarching purpose. And and so that's one of the ways where it can kind of lead to failure. And I think another example I often use is if you think a typical church or kind of religious institution, right? If you have a church, right, your purpose for that church is to save souls. That's what you have on the placard. That's what you read in the book. That's what you're supposed to do. Cool. And then that's fine. And that may be, you know, what you're trying to do and everybody's there. All good people and all wanting to do good things, that is truly the purpose of what you plan to do. However, because of other interconnections, the way you interact stuff, you can still mess it up where your purpose is supposed to be accomplished and doesn't get accomplished. So if you have a church and your purpose is to save souls, but you wind up getting a loan for some mega building and now you're spending literally all the interaction, all the elements of your church are going towards paying back the bank loan and you're spending more time trying to raise money and pay off this bank loan than you are saving souls. Well, now, all of a sudden, you wind up shifting the purpose. So now the theory of spouse and the theory and use are different. And so, so that can happen as well. So it's really about understanding how the function and the major purpose of what you're doing is directly tied to the individual pieces and the elements of how you interact and how your, you know, your business or whatever interacts and making sure that the connections between them are solid and sustainable so that you can be clear about the purpose that you have. You have sustainable interconnections to be able to do it. And you have kind of a very stable elements and all the subsystems are stable so that you can be successful in whatever you're doing.
1: Thank you very much for sharing that. It's very insightful. I know the audience is really going to love that. Speaking of church and speaking of purpose, I heard you speak on another podcast. You spoke about how you're really passionate about helping your local community with data and infrastructure. You're talking about pairing up with a local software company to help your church, which I thought was really amazing. A lot of the listeners on the show are also going to be up-and-coming data scientists and students. Mm -hmm. How can a student with nothing but a laptop and internet connection use AI for good?
0: Actually, with a laptop and internet connection, you can do a lot of stuff these days, right? And I think that's the cool thing about it. I think think it really, you know, start where you are. Like, I didn't go and be like, hmm, I'm going to today use this data and use AI to save the world and do great stuff in my community. You just, you know, as you learn, you know, you know, right? So I just saw a need where it's like, well, wait a minute, you guys want to know about this type of information. Well, can we find data on that? Okay. Let's look at it. Can this data tell us something informative about what we should do or can do or do next, you know, whether that's helping us to understand the system and the landscape around us, whether it's using that data to understand whether the program you're doing is successful or not successful, whether it's just finding out information that would be helpful to the people around you. And I think that again, because of, The tools that are available and the resources that are available to people now, I think there's so many more opportunities for anyone to do that. So as a student or as a practitioner, you know, someone who works at a local nonprofit or just knows something about your community and the scientific method and all this stuff is the same. You know, it starts with a question like, I wonder why this happens. I wonder why that happens. Right. The logic for that is, okay. let's I have a question. Let's maybe, you know, figure out how to better frame this question. Let's form a hypothesis. Well, I think it will do this. Right. Then let's see, does it do that? Now, again, you got a laptop and you got internet. You can test that hypothesis. Can I find some data to prove yes or no? Can I do some predictive analytics to see if we keep doing this? What might happen? You know, Can I run these experiments and do this kind of things? And then from that, you can actually look at the data and visualize it and see what these, what's been happening and the graphs, whatever. And then from that kind of understanding, now you can actually start you know, to kind of draw some report on it, draw some conclusions and really do deeper analysis on well hey based on this data that i found or that we collected that we've seen we think this is what's happening and here's the literature or here's this other article or here's the other model that says this is probably what's happening what we think we might need to do and so if, if you know that now you can draw some conclusions and have some better insight on what to do next and you know whether it's give recommendations or build some software or whatever you know i don't know <laughs> but i think the the, the point is the opportunity is there, the data is there, the tools are there, and really the only thing missing might be you.
1: Thank you very much for sharing that. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit now about STEM education. You've got a tremendous background in STEM education, so what would your advice be to students who are interested in studying uh, science, technology, engineering, or math?
0: Yeah, I think it's twofold. I think one, I would give probably two slightly different pieces of advice, but we really the same. I think that, one, if you have an interest, explore it, right? I think a lot of times, you know, really it's all about taking a deeper look, right? A lot of the things that, for me, for example, I got into really STEM because I was born that just a lot of the cool stuff I liked happened to have some science behind it. And when I looked at my comic books or I looked at movies or, you know, even just stuff I enjoy like video games, there was some kind of science behind it that kind of drew me closer to it. Like I first learned to code in high school, not because I was just a super coder and this is whatever. It was like I didn't really want to do my homework, and so when I was sitting in the supposed to be typing class, but and my figured out that hey, if you can figure out how to get in this is hacking, it's not right, but whatever. But he might have figured out that you actually you know get an operating system on the back of this you know computer. We actually download this program. We can actually play video games instead of typing and just press a button and switch. It. So that's how I actually my first time really getting into learning code or DOS or just operating systems. It was like oh. Let's for this video game here, so while someone is tired to be typing, I can go and play this. And while I don't encourage students to do the bad stuff, don't, don't do like I did. But you know, you gotta go what interest, you, right? So video games is what got me into like, wait, so you can make video games? If I understand this, I can do more stuff? That's an important thing, right? And then you know from there stuff like you know, these you know superheroes and you know, all these things seem cool and there's so much science in these movies. I wonder how is that really how it works? Let me explore that. And so I really just think it starts with imagination, just exploring what's interesting to you. You know, these days, you know, you have Google, you have the, the internet, you have ways to just find and learn more information. And I think that there's an interesting, like I think it was a book too, but I know there's a there's a movie um, or a documentary about something like Star Trek, right? There is so much like science that we have today. It was not even really fathomable. It was just like an idea and like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have, wouldn't it be cool to have like a device that you could just, you know, have and, and look at and, and communicate with that you could hold in your hand like this versus a rotary phone. would it be cool to have that? Yeah, but who's going to have a flip thing that you can talk to? That's silly, right? <laughs> now, right, we have the, we pretty much have almost tricorders. We have the phones and there's so much other technology they're developing just based off those ideas. Right. And I think that's kind of where it starts, because it's not so much a lot of times I always say, you know, in their books, is you know, I say start asking why. Right. I think that's important. I think a lot of times, though, when it comes to science, when it comes to these big ideas, you should ask, why not? Why can't we do that? What's stopping us? Why? You know, just be kind of that, that contrarian and just see maybe sometimes there's a reason. And I think that if you kind of start there, I think that's a great kind of intro to be like, well, is there a thing that can help me do what nobody else has thought about or something that people have thought about, but they didn't know how. Can I learn how? And I think just use the tools that we have available and do that.
1: Kind of going back to your book, STEM Navigators, talking about curiosity and asking why not. Do you feel that was a common thread or formula to success for the navigators that you highlighted in the book?
0: I think so. I think if I was just kind of saying like the common theme, I would think it would be that like at some point figuring out that just because the path that you were on, or what you were doing, what you were doing, didn't look like what everybody else had done, or what everybody's been done before, doesn't mean it's necessarily the wrong path. It might just be different. And I think for me and probably everybody else who was like an author would probably agree with that because really what it came down to is like, you know, you try, you try again, you realize it's right, you realize it's wrong, but you don't stop trying. You know, you don't give up. And a lot of times you just got to find what works for you or what that missing link sometimes is. Sometimes it's the right mentor, sometimes it's the right funding, sometimes it's the right program or just a little bit of new information and you're good to go. But overcoming the imposter syndrome, overcoming systemic issues, you know, overcoming your own personal things you got to deal with are all parts of it. And everybody has a different kind of road to go down. But I think that as long as you kind of understand that just because it's hard, just because it's difficult, just because it doesn't seem like, what the path that you're taking is the same as everybody else's doesn't necessarily mean your path is wrong. Maybe you just need some help. And I think that if you remember that, that's probably what I would say is probably the underlying theme in the whole thing.
1: Can you talk to us about if you've ever encountered or had to battle with imposter syndrome? And if so, how did you overcome that?
0: Yes. Regularly. I think it's one of those things where it's, I think you always kind of constantly got to realize like, man, am I really going to do this? Like, I think, even, you know, it's funny, like even after doing getting up to your Ph.D. or as you're working on it, you're like, man, do I, am I really ready to defend this dissertation that I wrote? Like you just spent your time writing a whole book and you walk in the room, y'all butterflies because like, man, it's just, am I ready for this? I don't know. Do I know it well enough. I don't know. You know, and it's, it's just one of those things where it I think it's a it's kind of a constant in the back of your head kind of thing. Right. And I think that everybody has it to a certain extent and for various different reasons. Um, I think a lot of times you'll see it. And there have been studies where a lot of times, you know, women, minorities, people of color, things like that, you know, sometimes experience it even more because they have those other systems that are operating to kind of reinforce it sometimes. And sometimes getting yourself to kind of hear to get above the noise, was saying, well, you know, if you, didn't, if you didn't pass that class, you're probably not smart enough to be here. Or, well, if you didn't uh, you know, understand this thing, well, you'll probably never be successful in this. I literally had a professor t- tell me, I remember when I was an undergrad, like, oh, well, I've been selected and I needed a job. And so I would applied to be, I think, a grader for, like, one of these courses. And matter of fact, I think the head of the department, whose class I had taken, recommended me, as a matter of fact, for the position. But the guy who made the final decision was like, yeah, well, you know, I looked at your, you know, this grade, and it was, yeah, you did okay, but you passed, but... I don't think you passed with a high enough grade or whatever. And I just don't think you're cut out to grade for my electromagnetics class. Electromagnetics is hard, and I don't think that's for you. Right. And you know, it's kind of like very disheartening. It's like, well, okay, how dare you tell me that? Like, you don't know me, whatever else. But I'm, I'm also kind of hard headed. So I didn't grade for that class, but I went on and got a master's with a specialization in electromagnetics. So, but I think, you know, overcoming it is more so about like understanding you got to really kind of know who you are. And sometimes that understanding of who you are is kind of a combination of, reinforcing it and getting that reinforcement from other places. Like whether you just keep a journal of what things have you done and kind of count your successes, whether you just make sure you have a good circle of people who will remind you like he said, what that's stupid. Didn't you do this and this and this and this? It's like, Oh yeah, I guess I did do that. You know? Right. And just having those good things on your team. So whether it's from, you know, your religion, your background, your spiritual beliefs, your family, your friends, and just understanding yourself as a person. I think the more you do that, then I don't think it's necessarily easy to kind of overcome it because I always start to kind of reinforce and bring it back, but I think it makes it easier and there are more tools in your tool belt to kind of deal with it. If it does come up.
1: I'm not sure if you're familiar with David Goggins, but he has this, this concept of the cookie jar, which is pretty much what you described. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Actually, I did do this before. Okay. Yeah. I've done all these yeah. amazing things. Yeah. You know, I should be here.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and even that, I mean, I think I always say, like, you know, as once you get to like kind of the PhD level, like you have to like create like a CV, right? And even when I'm not looking at jobs and stuff, I still try to make sure I, I you know, I don't always do it, but I try to make sure I update my resume or, or put these little projects on that long thing. It's like 15 18 hour or something. Or even just your LinkedIn, right? Even if you're not really trying to network it or whatever else, just always update your stuff just to remind yourself, like, I did do that a while ago. I was doing that. I did, you know, just because it's a good reminder for you. But also, it's useful for other things. Like, so for example, I'm currently the professionals chair for the National Society of Black Engineers, right? And so I'm basically helping them put together a conference. We just had one last week. We're actually putting together their next big conference for all the technical professionals who do stuff in that society. And I'm helping kind of organize the whole thing. And one of the things that we've been you know, talking about recently, when I had to apply to be the chair, they were like, okay, we see, you know, give us your resume, actually send us your Nesby resume. And I was like, what's well, the resume? Send us a resume just about the stuff you did since you, with the National Society of Black Engineers. So when we, you're in leadership, that you're writing awards, you're doing presentations. And I was like, yeah, I did a bunch of those. Oh crap, I got to find them and I got to write them down. <laughs> and it was, I'm not like, I was mad when they made me do it. But it was actually a really interesting exercise, right? Because what I got to see is, and I've been a member of that society and, like, actually these other ones for, like, you know, almost 20 years now, in some cases, a lot of of time. And you don't realize until you're, like, kind of forced to put together, like, wow, this interaction I had as a student actually helped me get information I need to get into grad school. Or doing these presentations actually helped me get ready for my dissertation defense. Or serving on this committee on a national executive member on one of the largest student regulations in the world. At 20 something I was, you know, on the board of directors for a multi-million-dollar organization. I didn't realize it's kind of a big deal, right? <laughs> you know, but you don't necessarily think of it in that context right then. But I think, you know, doing that kind of forced me to kind of put it together in a certain way. And so I think that's just a good practice to kind of put your different stuff, or whether it's organizations you were in, or just even like your community service nonprofit stuff. A lot of times we're so in the rat race, we focus on like, okay, here's my resume for school and or for uh, work or for what I've done here. We forget. Those hours and hours we spend every Sunday at church, those hours and hours we spend volunteering where we like to volunteer or those hours we spend coaching our kids, little league or whatever it is. And we don't necessarily take into account the the context, right? Of how much we actually learn from that interaction or how beneficial it was to us or the community or other things. And not just to try to make yourself seem fly or seem, you know, whatever, but I think it's great reinforcement, not only for yourself to know you're more than just your job or more than just what you're kind of thing, but also just to kind of show like skills and understanding and just personal development can come from anywhere. And so acknowledge that and look at it and pay attention to it because sometimes we forget to do that.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. That was awesome. And congrats on obtaining that appointment. That's, that's really cool. Thank
0: you.
1: So what can the STEM community do to foster the inclusion of people of color, especially Black Americans in particular, into our field?
0: Yeah. There's a lot of things. I think that, that some of it starts with just representation, right? And I think a lot of times what happens is, and, and I can definitely talk typically, especially like if you look at academia, a lot of times what will happen is, hey, let's hire a black guy or let's hire a black lady and get it. Oh, we got a double minority quota. And so now we're good. And that's all they <laughs> look at in terms of why they, they consider that inclusion or representation. When in actuality, it's like, no, let's, let's fully include these people and people like this into what we do, right? If you just hire that one black person, are they part of the decision-making body who can actually see what students are coming in, or who's, where the funding is going, things like that? Are they just there to be like, oh yeah, put them on the poster and we're gonna go ahead and do business as usual. If you know you're at an institution where for decades, you have not had a lot of minority representation or a lot of people, or you've had students who are complaining about their representation or, or something, and it was constantly and consistently kind of shoved to the side or put away. And you're like, oh, this is not a racist place. I don't feel like there's racism here. <laughs> All your students have been telling you that. Maybe it's time for you or better yet, someone else to take another look. And I think that a lot of times what happens is that as a STEM community, we, again, just like what I said with data science, we get to focus on the ones and the zeros, just the numbers and just, oh, I'm data driven, whatever else. We don't talk about the context. We're not having conversations with social scientists. We're not having conversations outside of just this small engineering circle of people who all look like us and have done the same things as us and went to the same schools we did. And so we basically keep reinforcing these same bad practices over and over again. If you're a, at a university or at a college where, for historically, everybody has all come from the same college and you're all talking to the same people about it, and you, you four guys don't feel like there's any problem here but yet you haven't asked any black women or any black men or any other minority of people of color and have not really listened to them when they tell you like, Oh, they're just, that's just those, those couple, everybody else is fine. Then you have a problem. And I think that step one is acknowledging like, Hey, there may be a problem. Maybe there is some systemic stuff going on. And I think that one of the things that's happening now, when you look at like between the death of George Floyd here in the U S and all the international outrage about it, you've seen more these institutions and more these places acknowledge, you know what? systemic racism, systemic injustice is a thing. And because it is a thing, now we probably need to start talking about, thinking about what to do about it. And I think the starting point is of course, obviously acknowledging it, but I think that if you really wanna have true inclusion, you have to look at for everything that we do, our people of color, our black people, our women, Included in that, when we're talking about things of who's getting hired, who's getting fired, we're talking about where the funding is going and where it's coming from, we're talking about what's the curriculum, who's getting educated, who gets admitted, who doesn't. Are Black people included in those discussions at the highest levels, or are they just, they're over there and we're not really, aren't really part of the conversation? We're just talking about them, but we're not actually talking to them, or you better talking with them. And I think that's where it really is going to start when that inclusion happens at every level.
1: Thank you very much for sharing your insight on that. Really appreciate it. So last formal question before we jump into a quick lightning round, and that is, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story?
0: I think the one thing I would like people to learn from my story, especially when it comes to just understanding and learning about science and stuff, is that it's anybody can do it, anybody can apply it. And so you don't have to get a PhD to, be, to do science or to do you know, really cool stuff, right? learning is a lifelong process and we live in a time now where there's so many things that are available to you to take advantage of really go and take advantage of technology because we're at a place and we're at a point in time where either you are going to learn to use technology or you will learn you've been used by technology it's really binary at this point and so I think that it's, the more people kind of understand that the better
1: jumping in to a quick lightning round here with the first yeah. question if you could meet any historical figure, who would it be and what would you ask them? Hmm.
0: I think I would probably really be interested in meeting Martin Luther King Jr. Mostly, you know, and I would basically ask them like, because I think one of the things that always, you know, intrigues me so much about Martin Luther King was like a lot of the stuff that people don't really talk about. Like we always hear about the I have a dream. We don't talk about the garbage mm-hmm. worker strikes and, you know, what he was doing after the I have a dream speech and really the more rounded out, you know, version. So I would really ask him, like, when he realized or when he decided, when he fully understood, like, that the importance of the poor people's movement and how those things are all integrated. Because he was one of the first people who really was really talking about that socioeconomic ecosystem and how it's all related, how you can't just talk about Black people and getting the rights to vote without talking about these poor garbage workers, even if they're all white, because that poverty and that racism are all, these things are all connected. So i really like to talk to him about that and how he... How you put that together? That's fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, definitely opened a lot of doorways for people like my parents to come to the states. So, what do you believe that other people think is crazy?
0: Yeah, well, probably a lot of stuff. I think it depends on who you talk to. Like my wife would say almost everything, but I think it's a couple of things. Like I know for me, I think one thing that I've i got a lot of pushback on is like whenever I talk about artificial intelligence and I refuse to say it's intelligent. Like I'm like, yo, artificial and eh, it's you know artificial intelligence we're talking about babies. We're not talking about Skynet. We're not talking about, you know, Brainiac. Let's start the conversation at baby and work our way up because that's kind of where my starting place is. And I usually get a lot of pushback in the data science community for that. But I think the other thing just in general is like when a lot of times I'm always one way when we talk about like ideas or businesses, like even when I've done consulting, I'm usually the guy in the room that's like, no, let me hear the whole idea. Like if you tell me like, hey, I want to sell hot dogs in outer space. I'm like, tell me more, right? <laughs> I'm not the one I like, got oh, that's stupid. I never, never. Because I think that a lot of times we're very quick to like dismiss whether it's ideas or just things. But again, I always ask why not, right? So if you want to sell hot dogs in outer space, that may sound like a crazy idea, but let me hear more. Maybe all you have is a hot dog cart now, but maybe you have a great idea for some you know, meatless, gluten-free, very healthy thing that you raise by plants that you're selling. It just so happens we have commercial companies that are going to space all the time. They're planning missions to Mars right now and they need some kind of sustenance and food for them, whatever else. So maybe you don't want to actually go to the moon and have a hot dog cart on the moon. Maybe you just want to be able to sell your hot dogs or your brand to people who happen to be in space, maybe connecting, you know, this hot dog cart guy with the guys at SpaceX or NASA or somewhere else. Maybe he can in a couple of years actually be selling hot dogs in space. But if you're not, open to hear them out or understand or put these disparate things together we don't get our hot dogs in space so i'm kind of weird like that i want to hear the rest of the story
1: I absolutely love it so if you could have a billboard put up anywhere what would you put on it and why
0: i can have a billboard put up anywhere i actually don't really know where i guess you know Times square because that's supposed to be the you know make new york me anywhere right um but i think it would probably be alpha where like one of my core beliefs especially like technology like i think that i'm um, I would say like, if just to everybody, anybody who wants to listen, like learn to use technology, right? Because either you're going to learn to use technology or you will learn you are being used by technology. That's like a fundamental belief I have, especially right now. And so I think that's probably one of the biggest, I would say takeaways from any time I talk, anytime somewhere I usually try to end it with that or say that at least once or twice, because I think that's like, the thing that everybody has to remember, but not enough people do, in my opinion.
1: What do you love most about being a data scientist?
0: I think it's just honestly the toys. Like I think you know, those seems kind of weird, but like I think I really enjoy most kind of doing data science right now, even more so than when I was even first learning it when it was just neural networks, pattern recognition stuff, whatever. Because now it's like there's so many more tools available, and it's it's such a a lot of ways broader conversation because there's more data available to do cool data science stuff with. So I think that, you know, in for lack of a word, like playing with the toys or looking at some new things the new kinds of new stuff. Oh, somebody built this. This is really cool. Oh, we can use, oh, you can use attention. Oh, use these transformers. This is a pretty wow, this is awesome, you know. Like those new new algorithms, whatever else, like I, I like the toys. <laughs> like I like playing with the new stuff.
1: We talked about selling hot dogs in space, but is there anything else that you're curious about at the moment?
0: Yeah. And honestly, we kind of alluded to a little bit. I'm very curious in terms of like what comes next in terms of like how these different aspects of the technology and that kind of the quantitative side are going to start getting merged with that kind of qualitative understand the context side, right? So what I've been really interested in looking at now is the whole kind of the concepts like the whole socioeconomic ecosystem, right? Because like not only like how do systems work, but how do they work together? And so we look at, like, even in our society right now, how are these things connected? How are they related? And is there data? Can we use it to show show how those connections work? Can we use it to predict how they might work in the future? Can we use it to kind of help us? And how do we need to watch out for it to see how it hurts us? But I'm really fascinated by how this abundance of technology and tools to look at data and other stuff and this abundance of data that we have that's right there to be looked at how those things will merge, but also how we as society will be able to apply it. And my hope is that we apply it or apply our knowledge well in terms of using it for good versus for ill.
1: What is a academic topic or maybe just area of research outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend some time studying or researching about?
0: I think yeah, it's not, I guess All the way outside, but I think it's fairly, you know, it's a little different. It's really just looking at like the Internet of Things, right? Because I think that we got a lot of data now and a lot of the new stuff is going to come from the not traditional stuff, if that makes sense, right? So I think the Internet of Things and having a watch with all your data and having these things in your house, these things in buildings and how they all fit together. I think a lot of the newer data is going to kind of come from there. So in some ways, I guess kind of connected to data science. But the part that I think is really interesting is how people are using these things and how they can really be used kind of collectively, right? So it's not just getting stuff off the Apple Watch, but how is the Apple Watch plus the data you're getting from the car, plus what you get from the house, plus what you're getting about their health and whatever else, how do those things all fit together to create you know better lifestyles. like how can they help with like health care like the elderly or for sick people whatever else you know how can they help in you know fitness and understanding or just how can they help with education and learning right and so I think just kind of really looking at the history of internet things and how the, those things are coming together and not just the data part so to speak but the usage part and the user experience part I think that's going to um I think that would be really fascinating for, from a data science perspective because I think it'll give you more insight about just where data might come from in the future or where it's coming from now. But also, you know, it'll also help with, I think, what we talked about earlier, those kind of higher level ethical questions at some point. Because if you know that, hey, any of the things is this Apple Watch can actually tell me stuff about people's location and it's great to be able to get that data and do cool stuff with it. But it could be dangerous if there's a stalker or somebody else who has some data science background, too, and can crack this and actually get to that. So I think that kind of understanding how will help a little bit when we got to ask what's the best method or what's the best thing to do that makes the most sense.
1: What's the number one book, fiction or nonfiction one of each, if you'd like, that you'd recommend our audience read and what was your most impactful takeaway from it?
0: Yeah, there's actually a book called Systems Thinking, a primer. And I think it's actually a really good book because I think it just gives a really good, basic breakdown of like not only what systems are but like how they work and i think as a as a data scientist i think that systems part is key because i think again it's easy to think of everything in just ones and zeros you know it's easy to think everything is just the data itself but understanding like how those kind of uh, those uh, systems come together i think is really really critical to understanding the importance of your role in bigger stuff whether good or bad
1: yeah, I've, I've read that book. Oh. It's the book that has the slinky on the cover, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, the, that's,
0: that's the one. And I'm like, what yeah. is her
1: name? Uh, uh, there's D- Donella Meadows and.
0: Yes, Diana Meadows. Knight. Meadows. Okay, yeah. So you just said, I'm like, ah. Yeah, I like. I literally, I had it in my bag. I was just looking at it. I just, I just saw it a minute ago. Like, wait, I,
1: okay. Yeah. Listen to that book yeah. on Audible. It's excellent. Yeah. Great yeah.
0: And that's what I like about it. It's not like a ton of like equations and stuff like that. It's just like a real like straightforward, like, Hey, this is, you can do it. You know? So yep. it's a good, quick read, but it just gives you just like some understanding or insight into like, huh, this side fits together. Oh, so even if I don't do, if I don't do anything and just let it, this thing can go running amok. If I'm not careful. I need to think about that when I'm designing this program. I need to think about that when I'm doing whatever I'm doing. It's Yeah, I think it's very insightful in that way.
1: If we could somehow get a magic telephone that allowed you to contact 18-year-old Anderson, what would you tell him?
0: I'd probably give him some stock tips, that's for sure. But I think, honestly, I'd probably just say that, like, don't be so serious. (laughs) Like, I think that there's, I would definitely say, make sure to pay attention to the, you know, the fun, you know, and the good stuff and the good times because there's, in some ways, the stuff you didn't think was as important wound up being more important. You know, some of those relationships that you made when you were in college and whatever else were more important than some of those classes you were breaking your neck trying to get through and just kind of understanding the importance of just, you know, relationships and just, you know, mentoring and just connecting with people. I think that's probably the biggest thing is like, don't take it for granted. You know, everybody's going to be here. It's your, you know, they're going to be around. You're going to have opportunity to. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is just the importance of just those connections.
1: What song do you currently have on repeat?
0: Outcast, actually. Outcast Bombs Over Baghdad. I was just actually looking at that, listening to that the other
1: day. It's a classic one. How can people connect with you? Where can they find you online?
0: Uh, yeah, they can reach out, go to my website, com. You hit me up at uh, info at uh, com. Or, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, just D-R-A-D-P-R-E-W-I-T-T, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever.
1: Dr. Pruitt, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show. I really appreciate you coming by and sharing such wonderful insights with us. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Thank Thank you for having me.